Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, please, if you will, and go to 1 Corinthians tonight, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as I mentioned in the service this morning, in the message, as I work on Sunday messages, I don't plan this, it's just interesting how many Sundays the message on Sunday morning fits together with the message on Sunday night. Sometimes as I prepare the morning message, I say, hey, there's reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. More often than that, as I'm preparing the evening message, I say, you know, that ties in exactly with what I'm going to preach in the morning. It ties in with something that I'm going to preach in, in the morning message. And once again, it happened this week. As I mentioned this morning, the message from Ephesians chapter 1 on the Lord Jesus Christ being over all, far above all. There was the quote in there of, of, from Psalm chapter 8. And also, reminder here that that's in our passage tonight. So we read some of those verses this morning. The evening message, or the message tonight on our theme, The Second Coming of Christ, really focuses primarily on verses 51 through 58. We'll read those verses later in the service. And it's not that we're going to just have a really fast introduction and then a long main part of the message from 51 to 58. We're going to kind of spread it out. I would like to read the main verse that's been on my mind uh, ever since I started to, to bring this uh, bring the series on the second coming. And I, and I made a list of verses that I just felt it needed to be included in those messages. And verse 58 was in that list. And I've thought about it ever since the first of the year as I've been preaching on Sunday night, especially on the coming of the Lord. I thought, well, as I work on I say, maybe this week I ought to preach on 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And then for one reason or another, I don't. But tonight I want to mention that verse. We'll not spend a lot of time on that verse, in fact. And we'll end the message with that verse. So it's really not our main text tonight, but it is everything in this chapter leads up to that verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Would you read that with me together, please, or quote it if you know it? Here we go. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What is the first word of verse 58? Together, please, good and loud. Therefore, so you know what that does, don't you? And if there ever is a therefore in the Bible that is absolutely so vitally important that we remember the significance of that word here, I think it would have to be 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, what's a therefore? And it doesn't just go back to verse 57. It doesn't go back to 56, nor 55, nor 54. You say, Pastor, how far does it go back? Verse 1. You say, you're not doing that. Yeah, we're doing that. We're going to spread it out evenly. It'll not be a longer message than usual, whatever that means. Okay? But this is the resurrection chapter. You know that. We have the chapter of love, 1 Corinthians 13. We have the chapter of faith, Hebrews 11. There are some chapters like that where like the whole chapter is about that subject. 1 Corinthians 15 is the classic chapter, like we're classic. It's a main chapter in the Bible on the subject, the doctrine of resurrection. And it all starts in verse 1, and it all leads up to the application of this entire chapter is found in verse 58. 
In the first part of this chapter, the focus is on the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verses 1 through 11. The second part of the passage, the second part of the chapter, is verses 12 through 34, and that focuses on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and all people, all people. Then starting at verse 35 and going to the end of the chapter, the emphasis is still on the resurrection, of course, but it's especially on the resurrection of Christians, the, the resurrection of believers. So let's start at the beginning, please. Verses 1 through 8, the theme is the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you, here's the key word, the gospel. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand by which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you now, of course, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. And here's the definition of the gospel, biblical definition of the gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We'll stop there for just a moment, okay? The bodily resurrection is a part of the gospel. The gospel for all mankind. If there is no proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then listen now, there is no gospel message that's been preached. The gospel message is not, uh, you've done some bad things, but Jesus died for your bad things. And you can be saved if you believe on him. That's not the gospel, that's part of the gospel. The gospel is not, uh, you know, God has a will for your life, and, and you'll never find God's will for your life unless you... Uh, commit your, your, your trust to the Lord. So you got to commit your trust to the Lord and then you can find God's will for your life. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The gospel is that after Christ died for our sins, as the Bible says, the scriptures say, he was buried. The burial of Christ is part of the gospel. It's proof that he was dead. And the gospel includes the fact that he rose again. The gospel is what? How Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And I've mentioned this many times, I'll say it again. Many of what we call gospel tracts are really not gospel tracts. They say absolutely nothing about the resurrection of Christ. That is a part of the gospel. In the next few verses now, we have just one of the proofs of the gospel, and that is that Jesus Christ appeared to many of his followers. After he rose again, he did that for 40 days. It's not the only proof of the resurrection, but it is one of the proofs of the resurrection, and that begins at verse 4 and 5 then. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, of course, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above or more than 500 brethren at once at the same time. Paul says, of whom many of them, the greater part of them, in fact, they remain until this present. But some are fallen asleep. Some have already gone to be with the Lord. Jesus appeared over 500 of his followers at one time. Most of them are still alive. Paul said, if you can figure out who they are, go talk to them. They'll tell you. Oh, then he says, after that, he was seen of James, verse 7. Then of all the apostles. Last of all, Paul says, he was seen of me also on the road to Damascus. Remember, the Lord appeared to him. Last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am, and Paul always talked like this. I didn't deserve his appearing to me. I didn't deserve salvation. I didn't deserve to hear and believe the gospel. But he says, by the grace of God. He says, I'm sorry, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles. 
that I'm not meet or worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. But notice, please, the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so you believed. It is a proven fact Jesus Christ arose from the grave. He arose bodily. And by the way, that is the foundational basis of everything else that follows in this chapter. If you miss the first 11 verses, you don't just miss a couple of thoughts and then we got another idea for the rest of the chapter. If you miss the first 8 verses or 11 verses, you really miss a great part of the message of this entire chapter because everything to do with the bodily resurrection has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is a chapter not only of the resurrection, but a chapter that focuses on the coming of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is not going to come again. If he stayed dead after he died on the cross the first time he came to earth. You understand that? There is no second coming of Jesus Christ if there is no resurrection after he was crucified upon the cross. Then you come to verse 12 and 12 and following. The focus now is on the resurrection of all mankind because Jesus Christ rose again. And this second uh, section in this chapter is introduced with a question that really needs to be answered. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, and that's what's been preached, that's the gospel. Well now, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, some people, we don't know who they were, some people were bringing into the church at Corinth some false doctrine. They were trying to convince the people there that they were wrong in their beliefs. That they ought, to, they ought to get this idea of there being a body resurrection out of their minds. Because you live your life and however or whenever you die, when you die, that's it. That's it. No more the end, period. Done. And Paul says, well, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, then how say some among you there in Corinth that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so God now is going to, through Paul, he's going to emphatically answer this question. Is there really resurrection after the dead? Look what he says in verse, 30, in verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is vain also. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if, the, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep have already died in Christ, they're perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. I mean, what does he say? He says to summarize it, the, the resurrection of all people and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are absolutely linked together. You can't separate them doctrinally. If Jesus Christ did not rise again, if he did not, then there is no bodily resurrection for anybody, period. That's it. If Jesus Christ did rise again, then most surely there is a coming resurrection for every single person who's ever lived on planet Earth. 
So here's the question. Did Christ rise again? Or did he not rise again? What's the problem if he doesn't rise again? And he lists several things in this passage. He says, first of all, if Christ did not rise again, he says, our preaching is vain. What does vain mean? It means empty. That word occurs several times in this chapter. Our preaching is empty. Our preaching is useless. Our preaching is worthless. That was verse 14. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And by the way, you know what that means then? If preaching is vain, look at verse 15. Because if our preaching is vain, if it's not true, then our preaching is a lie. It's false. It's not true, verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. We're liars. We're false proclaimers, false preachers. Why? Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. He also says, if Christ did not rise again, he says, then something else is vain. Not only is our preaching vain, empty, worthless, nonsense, lies, but he says our faith is vain. That was also in verse 14, was it not? If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain? And he says, your faith is vain also. Your trust in the Lord is all in vain. And look what he says in verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. What does that mean? You are yet in what, folks? So you're yet in your sins. If Christ did not rise from the grave, Paul says, then your, our preaching is vain, your faith in Christ is vain, and if that is true, then all of your sins are still on your account. You're still in your sins. None of your sins have been forgiven. Think about us just sitting here tonight. How many sins have we all together, not together committed, but take all of the people in this place and multiply times the number of sins that we've all committed. That's a lot of sins. And you know what God says? Okay. If Christ did not rise again, there's not one single sin that anyone in this place has ever committed that has been forgiven. All of our sins are still on our own account. And you know what that means. The wages of sin is death. And you know what follows death, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And you know what comes after judgment. Whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So you've got sin, death, judgment, and hell for every person who's ever lived, if Christ did not rise again. It's all, it all fits together. And by the way, we would have no proof that what Jesus did on the cross was accepted by God if he did not rise from the grave. We're so close. Keep your finger here, please. Go back to Romans. I'll just quote it for you, okay? Romans chapter 4, verse 25, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our, do you know the next word? Our justification. Jesus Christ was delivered, crucified for our offenses, our sins. But he was raised again for our justification. To validate the fact, to prove the fact that what Jesus did on the cross was accepted. If Jesus Christ would have remained dead after, after he was crucified, there would be no way that anybody could ever say the atonement was provided for. That Jesus' blood was shed that we might have forgiveness. And we can be saved. There would be no proof that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of his son as the atonement for the sins of the world. That's all part of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then would you look at verse 18. 
What did we read there? Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. They're gone. They're done. They're dead. The end, period. Every Christian. You have a loved one. You have a father or mother. You have a son or daughter. You have a grandparent. You have a friend. You have, a, you, have, you have somebody who is a Christian, was a Christian, and they've already died. If Jesus Christ did not rise again, Paul said, they're done. That's it. No, they're, they're, they're going nowhere, and you'll never see them again. And then he says, oh, he's not even finished. Look at the next verse. He says in verse 19, if in this life only... We believers, if we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Miserable, you know what that means? Pitiable. To be pitied. What does it mean to, to feel sorry for? All of our living, forget it. I don't even like saying what I wrote down. All of our sacrificial living, including all of the fun we missed, it's all worthless. We're to be pitied. You say, well, that, I don't know if I sound, it doesn't sound like when I say it. See, I don't like that, the idea of all the fun we've missed. Let, let me tell you something. There is a lot of fun in sin. There's a lot of pleasure in sin. If there's not pleasure in sin, why are so many people committing it all the time? It's only the fact that the Bible says that, that there's pleasure in sin, but it only lasts for a little while. Then comes all kinds of problems from that sin. But sin is pleasurable. You know that. I know that. But I'm thankful tonight as a Christian, I don't feel like I've missed one thing by being a Christian. How about you? I don't think there's anything out there that I feel like I got ripped off, man. I just wish I could do that, but I can't do that because I'm saved. I don't think that about anything, but I do know one thing. If a person is not saved, generally, they think they're having a lot of fun. And we as Christians, listen now, we say no to a lot of things, not because they would not be fun or pleasurable. We say no to things because we know it doesn't glorify God. We know it's not according to the plan of God. We know it's outside of the will of God. We know that grieves the heart of God. We know that that, that, that that makes God sad. We understand what that does in our lives and our breaks our fellowship with the Lord. And we know it certainly doesn't show any gratitude and praise to the one who died for us. So here we are living selfishly, doing our thing just to have some fun. No, no, I don't want to live like that as a Christian. Paul says, if in this life only... We have hope in Christ. We are of all men most to be pitied. And not just that fact that we weren't able to do something we could have done if we weren't saved. The main thing is, listen, our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is the fact, our belief is the fact that there is life after death. That it is a joy to serve Christ. And as we'll see in the rest of the chapter, that there are rewards for those who live for the Lord. And so we have so many promises of the Lord that we love, that we cling to. We love our Bibles. We love fellowship. We love to come to church. We love to pray. We love to talk to lost people about the Lord. And we love to walk in the will of the Lord just to know that we are pleasing the Lord. Uh, what, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 19, or 9, we therefore labor that whether prison or absent, we might be pleasing to, well, accepted to, we might be acceptable to the Lord. That's a wonderful way to live. And the world... Looks at a Christian usually and says, ridiculous, I feel so sorry for those Christians, man. They got to go to church on Sunday, can't go play golf, can't go to the beach, can't go to the park, you know, can't go to watch a good movie, you know, can't have a couple of beers, can't go down to the casino and make a few bucks or lose a few bucks or whatever else, you know, can't do this, can't do that. You know, Christians, what a sad, boring life. There's nothing sad or boring about the Christian life, amen? They just don't see it that way. 
So after all these, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is vain, our preaching is vain, we're still in our sins, dead Christians are still dead, that's it, and we're most to be pitied. Now look at the next verse, verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. God makes an emphatic statement. But now is Christ risen from the dead. So what does that mean? Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. We're no longer in our sins. All those who've who've died as Christians, they're absent from the body. They're present with the Lord. And Christians are not to be pitied. In fact, who is to be pitied? An unsaved person is to be pitied. I I feel sorry for unsaved people. I don't feel sorry for Christians. Because Christ rose again. And look at the next two verses. But now is Christ risen from the dead. That's exclamation point. I, I added that in my Bible. I just put an exclamation point in my Bible. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And he's become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man after every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward they that are Christ, notice the next three words, at his coming. At his coming. So Christ is coming coming back. And all those who are saved who have eternal life, we will be resurrected or if he comes while we're alive, we'll be raptured. We'll see that later in the chapter. All of our hopes, our beliefs as a Christian will be finally realized forever that they are true. God always keeps his word. And it's all based upon the fact that as in Adam, all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam brought sin, brought death. Jesus Christ came and died and rose again, and he brings life, yea, he brings eternal life. Adam, souls, on the way to hell. Jesus Christ, souls, now redeemed, can go to heaven if they'll trust him. And the verses that follow are the verses that tied in with the message this morning. Remember, please, verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall, excuse me, then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, all authority, all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things, he hath, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that it is accepted, which he did put all things under him. And we'll skip these next few verses. The next few verses simply is about the fact, uh, 29 through 34. Listen, I like the gospel song, It Will Be Worth It All. Whatever hardships we go through as a Christian, whatever persecution we face, whatever, whatever situations we have to deal with that come from being a believer, listen, it is worth it because this life does not end when we die. There's resurrection. That's basically kind of a summary of 29 through 40 through 34 and a challenge there in verse 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. Why? For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And then he comes to this last section of the book, the final section, which begins at verse 35. And verse 35, this last section, it ends, it begins kind of like verse The second section began. Verse 12, remember, now if Christ be preached among you, it was a question. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Question. Now you come to verse 35. But some man will say, how how are the dead raised up? And And with what body do they come? So somebody asked the question, wait a minute. 
You say now when a body dies that that body is absolutely going to surely come back to life. There's going to be a resurrection. Yeah, sure. It's kind of like this. It's like a jeering. It's like, yeah, sure. How's that going to work? That can't happen. Some man will say, well, how are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? If he doesn't ask it in sarcasm and scorn, he might ask it sincerely. You say, well, that's interesting. That is amazing. A person is born, he lives, he dies, he's buried, and then later on, that body is going to come back to life? Well, tell me, how does that happen? Look at the next verse. Paul says, thou, what's the next word? Thou fool. What does fool mean? I looked it up in a Greek concordance. It comes from two words. The word fool comes from two Greek words. The first word is not. It's a negative not. The second word is the mind. Combine those two thoughts, the not and the mind. So what is a fool? He's mindless, stupid, ignorant, senseless. We would say, listen, uh, you're not thinking. When somebody says, well, then how were the dead raised up? Paul says, uh, you're not thinking. Or could we put it this way, perhaps? Uh, it doesn't sound good, but okay, like sarcastically sometimes we say, where is your what? Yeah. I think she's the only one that said that. Where is your brain? <laughs> I mean, that's really, that's what this means. Mindless, foolish, stupid, senseless. Not thinking right. Elevator's not on the top floor here. Where is your brain? Well, that's a nice way of saying what, well, that's a bad way of saying what Paul said nicely. Thou fool. Let me, let me tell you how it happens. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened or made alive, except it what, folks? It's got to die. He's going to give the illustration here now of, of, of planting seeds. How many of you have lived in the country or someplace where you, you planted seeds? Could I see your hand? I mean, I, I worked on a farm, got a lot of my college money working on a farm. We had 15 acres at our house. I know what, what gardening is all about, sad to say. But you just take this little kernel of corn. It's not bright yellow, and you wouldn't eat it. It's kind of shriveled up looking. It's kind of dead looking, shriveled up this little, this little faded yellow piece of hard corn. And you look at it and think, what a, what a, what a lifeless thing. What, a, what an empty thing. It's useless. You know, what are you going to do? Oh, plant it in the, gar in the ground and cover it up and start watering it once in a while and let the sun come and beat on the ground there. And after, it's been so long, I forget, after so many days, there's a few little cracks in the ground. And the next day you see just some little green speck coming up. And then it, the cracks get bigger as this green thing gets bigger. And here it comes, and it grows. I know in Michigan they say, by the 4th of July, your sweet corn's supposed to be knee-deep. All right, it keeps on growing, and pretty soon it's like, whoa, it's, it's taller than I am. Then you see these, these husks of corn, these, this, and it's like there's a whole bunch of them on there. And you wait until the, the tassel turns from yellow to brown, and it feels kind of firm. And you break it off, and you take it home, and you... Whoa, corn on the cob. Put on a bunch of butter, amen. 
put on a whole bunch of salt. I, I don't do this, but you understand. Butter and salt, and man, I mean, it tastes good. Say, where did all that come from? One dead-looking, faded, yellow, shriveled-up kernel of corn. And God, through Paul, says, that explains how the resurrection happens. It's so simple, I don't even have to explain it. Watch this. But some will say, 35, how, says, how, how are the dead raised up? With what body did they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not made alive except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, not this plant, not this fresh corn that you eat, but you only sow bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of, of some other grain, corn, okay? But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him. And to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men. There's another kind of flesh of beasts. There's another kind of fishes. There's another kind of birds. There are also celestial bodies, bodies in the heavens, moon, stars, sun. There are also terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial, it's another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star different from another star in glory. So also, notice now, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Our body is sown like a kernel of corn put in the earth. Our body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Notice, please, 44. It is sown a natural body, an earthly, natural, material body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual. We don't get our spiritual body first, but that which is natural. And afterward, resurrection day, rapture day, then that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, so also, excuse me, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also or such are they also that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthly, the earthy, so also shall we bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. You say, what is this all about? It's just a kernel of corn. It's sown in the ground as a dead, faded, little yellow, hard little kernel of corn. But it's raised a plant. And so it is with our bodies. Where the body is put in the grave, the body that was earthly, an earthy body, flesh and blood body. It's a sinful body. And it's a decaying body. And it's a dying body. It's not, a, it's not a, an incorruptible body. It's not an immortal body. It's capable and it sins and it gets old and it has all kinds of physical problems. And then also... Hey, listen, it dies. But when you die and you get resurrected, you get a new body like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. No sin, no corruption, no dying body. Brother Brian taught again in Sunday school, there's no death in heaven. And that takes us to the very last part of this passage, and it begins at verse 51. 
It does not begin with a question, but it could. If there was a question at the beginning of verse 51, it would go like this. Well, now, wait a minute. If you have to put a kernel of corn in the ground and cover it up and bury it so it can die and come to bring up a new plant, if you have to have death for that to happen, then here's the question. What about those who are alive when Jesus comes back and they never die? So how can that be possible that they get resurrected? Remember back in verse 23, the last phrase, at his coming, resurrection at Christ's coming. Well, then what if Jesus comes back and you haven't died? You're still alive when he comes back. How's that going to work? And that's what the rest of the chapter is all about. Let's just read it. Behold, I show you a mystery. What's a mystery? Something that was not previously understood in the Old Testament scriptures. Something that is not understood until God chooses at some time to reveal what it's all about. He says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Every Christian is not going to die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal, this dying body, must put on a body that doesn't die, immortal. Puts on immortality. So when this corruptible body shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal body shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This whole passage of scripture, you know what this is? Really, it's like taunting. You know what taunting is? Like athletes are not supposed to taunt. And in many sports, if the refs do what they're supposed to do, if, you're, if it's known you are taunting your opponent unnecessarily, rub it in his face, then they will throw a flag and they'll penalize you. Personal foul, taunting, so you don't need to do that. That's really what we have here. It's like taunting sin. It's like taunting death. When God says, so when this corruptible have put on incorruption, verse 54, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. If there's not taunting, look at this. Oh, death. Yeah, come on, death, oh, death, where is thy sting? It's gone. Oh, grave, come on now, where is your victory? Gone. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day, and now because he lives, we live also. Nothing, not all this stuff in vain, not all this vain stuff, but the reality that we will be with the Lord forever and ever and ever in a body that is absolutely incapable of sinning and a body that will never have any sickness, pain, sorrow, and no more death. It's all done. Oh, he says, oh, grave, oh, death, where is thy sting? It's gone. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? 
The sting of death is sin. The strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. There's the word again, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of all that, from verse 1 all the way through 57, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, a part of the gospel message, the proof of his resurrection, he showed himself to so many followers. The value, the importance, the reality of the resurrection is the fact that all men will be resurrected. And it's going to happen like a kernel of corn is put in the ground and it dies and it comes forth. It's got a different body. Now he says, what does that have to do with us? What effect should that have on us? How can we apply this grand and glorious truth, the doctrine of the resurrection? How can we apply that to ourselves? He says in verse 58, real simple. He said, this is how it works. I put it this way. Doctrinal declaration leads to practical exhortation. Doctrinal declaration, verses 1 through 57, leads to practical exhortation, verse 58. Or doctrinal declaration leads to practical application. Therefore, he says, in light of all this, therefore, my Christian brother, my beloved brethren, he says, first of all, be steadfast. You know what that means? It means settled. Comes from a word, sit or be sedentary. So the idea is, look, I'm staying right here with what I believe. I'm sitting right here. I'm staying right here with what I believe. I'm staying right with my beliefs. I'm standing firm. He says, be steadfast. Then he says, be unmovable. Unmovable comes from two words, not and to stir up to a place elsewhere, to remove, to move away. It's very similar in meaning to steadfast. This person says, look, I will not be moved away from what I believe. Paul said, how, how come some are coming into your assembly and are saying there is no resurrection? He said, no, 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 no. Don't go that way. Don't, do not go that way. Do not be moved away from what you believe. Do not let these false teachers, do not let anyone else, do not let anyone or anything move you away from what you believe. You stay right where you are. Don't move away. Be steadfast. Be unmovable. Then he says, keep on abounding in the work of the Lord, not just serving the Lord but abounding in serving the Lord. Abounding, yeah, it means to superabound, to excel, to exceed more than enough. The idea here is that we should be so moved, so motivated by the truth of two things. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all Christians to be with the Lord. And it's all going to happen at the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So keep your mind, keep your focus on a crucified and risen Christ and keep your mind on God's promises that Jesus is going to come again soon. And whether we're alive when he comes back or he comes after we're already passed away, it's not going to change the fact we're going to be absent from the body, we're going to be present with the Lord. And so you just keep on, he says, abounding in the work of the Lord. What does that mean? Serving the Lord. It also means walking in the will of the Lord. Really, the whole meaning here is just keep seeking to know the will of God and walk in it. Walk in the truth of God's word. And it implies and also includes the, the idea of advancing the work of God's kingdom. There's something wrong with a Christian who has no interest in telling others how to be saved. I'm just glad I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord, I'm not going to hell, but I don't care about anybody else. That doesn't sound like a born-again believer who's living for the Lord. Would you agree? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always superabounding in the work of the Lord. And look how he ends. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.
there's those two words again, in vain. Our faith is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. Our living for the glory of Jesus Christ is not in vain. Any persecution we face is not in vain. There's nothing about the true Christian life that is in vain. And now God says to end this passage, I'll tell you something else that's not in vain. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I think that implies two things. God will bless our efforts. I think of Galatians 6, 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall what we shall reap if we faint not. Same message there. Just keep on doing what's right. Keep on serving the Lord. Keep on giving out the gospel because our labor is not in vain in the Lord. But I think also it's more than that. It's the fact that we will see the Lord one day. We will be with the Lord forever. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. So because of God's truth, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that fact, therefore, that there will be a resurrection for all of us. Rapture for some rather than resurrection. God says, if this is all true, and it is, then don't you move away from your beliefs. Don't you slow down in your serving the Lord. Don't you quit uh, walking in the will of God. You keep going with that. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Bow your heads, please. What a great chapter, resurrection chapter. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He died for us. Praise the Lord. The grave could not hold him. Up from the grave he arose. Mighty triumph for his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. We'll soon be celebrating Easter, the Lord willing. Our Father, we thank you tonight for this chapter of Scripture. That our preaching is not in vain. It's real. It's honest. It's truth. Our faith is not in vain. We're not still in our sins. Our Christian living and all that we do and all that we don't do is not in vain. We're not to be pitied, Father. It's reality. And the fact that we know that we will at death or at the rapture We'll be with you, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And then there's that wonderful promise of a new body like unto the body of Jesus Christ. We don't understand it, hard to comprehend it, but we know it's true. I pray, Father, that in the midst of the world in which we live, that we might be just what we've heard tonight. We might be steadfast. We might be unmovable, immovable, continuing to believe what we believe, and live like we live and serve and witness like we do. Because our labor, we know, is not in vain in the Lord. We pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, please. I don't want our invitations to be routine. I want them to always be special.